Now, this here is tape number two, and the book number 14, 13th Sunday After Trinity, Luther's Works, Linker Edition. We're on paragraph 43, where we're going to start here. The Catholics should have said to their people, man, do you see... You poor condemned creature, you should have delight in God's law, yet you have no pleasure in it. Hence show some delight in love, or you are God's enemy and the devil's friend. In this way the people would have bravely forsaken their presumption, come to a knowledge of themselves, and they would have said, O oh God, I am condemned. Yes, this is right. Everyone might soon know and conclude that we all belong to the devil as long as we find within ourselves displeasure in the law of God. Therefore, boldly cast away all works from you. Then you will find delight in and love for God's law in your heart. That doesn't happen in one sentence like we said on the last tape. First of all, Christ has to enter therein and so forth. And then you will find delight and love in God's law. I experience indeed that God's law is holy, right, and good, but it is my death. And if it could be, I would prefer that it did not exist. And thus all people are disposed in their hearts, as St. Paul says very beautifully in the seventh chapter of Romans, had we now remained in this condemnation, we would have had to perish forever. Therefore, another part is added, the gospel, which speaks of consolation and teaches salvation, whence we are to obtain it, so that the law may be satisfied. Now, when I see by the law that I am condemned, lying even among murderers, half dead, the devil has stolen my soul and taken it captive in Adam and Eve with all faith and righteousness, has left nothing except my bodily life, which will soon be extinguished. Now here comes the Levite and the priest who render human satisfaction and teach this and that, but it does no good. They pass by. However, when the Samaritan comes, he helps. That is, when Christ comes and offers us his mercy and says, Behold, you are indebted to love God with all your heart, but you've not done it. Now believe in me, I will give you my sufferings, my righteousness, and so forth. This will help me, or help you. Here he lifts me on his beast, that is, on himself, and takes me to the end, that is, into the Christian church. After this he comes and pours into me his grace, which is the oil, so that I feel I am lying on his shoulders. This gives me a very joyful conscience. Moreover, he pours into me wine, which is to devour and drown the old Adam, but even then I am not perfectly well. Health has indeed been poured into me, and there is a turn for the better. Nevertheless, I am not perfectly restored to health. Meanwhile, Christ serves and purifies me by the grace he pours into me, so 
so that day by day I become pure, chaster, milder, gentler, and more believing, till I die when I shall be utterly perfect. Thus, when we now come before God the Father and are asked whether we have also believed and loved God and have wholly fulfilled the law, then the Samaritan will step forth. Christ the Lord carries us lying on his beast, and he will say, Alas, Father, although they have not wholly fulfilled thy law, yet I have done so. Let this be their benefit, because they believe in me. Thus all the saints must do, however holy and pious they may be, they must lay on Christ's shoulders. If even the most holy people, as priests and Levites, could not satisfy the law, how shall we undertake to do so with our feigned works, bald pates and caps? O oh, our wretched and corrupt nature, let this be sufficient for the present, and let us call on God for grace. And that's the end of the first sermon on Luke 10, 23 to 37. Now, on page 36, we have the second sermon, and this one here is found in edition C, in place of the foregoing one. And the contents in bold print says, How Christ praises the dispensation of the gospel, preaches on truly good works, and how the kingdom of Christ is represented here in a beautiful picture. So we begin on page 37, number one, how Christ praises the dispensation of the gospel. In this history, we have especially three lessons. First, that Christ praises the time when the gospel was revealed and published, which is rightly and justly called the time of grace. Secondly, what truly good works are according to the command of God, which he pictures by the beautiful example or history of the Samaritan's actions to the one wounded by robbers. In the same history sets forth as a loving picture also the third lesson, a portrayal of the kingdom of Christ or grace, which the preaching of the gospel makes known. The first lesson is given in these words. Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I say unto you that many prophets and kings desire to see the things which ye see, and saw them not, to hear the things which ye hear, and heard them not. The evangelist says that Christ spoke these words especially to his disciples. And just at the time when he was greatly moved with joy in his soul or with spiritual delight, and therefore he thanked and praised his heavenly Father from his heart for the revelation of the gospel. Here we see that he was especially anxious to speak this with his disciples, since their own salvation also depended upon that revelation. 
and such words are nothing more than praise of the gospel that they lived in the time and now hear and see of the revelation of the gospel which brings to the world deliverance and salvation from sin and all misery and of this time or revelation the beloved prophets formerly prophesied in a glorious manner and they longed and cried for it beyond measure in their very souls as is manifest especially in the psalms and in the prophecy of isaiah therefore you are blessed and more than blessed for you enjoy now the truly golden year the pure kingdom of grace and the blessed time therefore only see to it that you retain it and make good use of it for such praise is true admonition yea an earnest discourse of lamentation for he exhorts to thanksgiving for such grace and on the other hand he laments over the great ingratitude of the world that there are so few people who know and receive this while so many despise it therefore he says christ turned especially to the disciples and praised them as if he wished to say yes your eyes and ears are indeed blessed which see and hear this or alas on the other hand there are many eyes and ears that do not wish to see or hear it although they have it right before their eyes and ears christ thus shows however great and superabundant the treasure is and however comforting the preaching of it may be yet among the great mass of people it is only despised and even persecuted and now the times are changing since the beloved fathers and prophets in their day would have given their body and life had they been able to live to see it and had they experienced it their hearts would have blossomed to fruit in their bodies because of joy and they would have thought they were walking where there were only roses as the pious aged simeon embraced in his arms the savior while he as an infant could not yet speak nor walk and with all joy entrusted his life to him no longer cared for this life nor for anything in it dear mother eve also earnestly prayed and longed for this salvation and was glad when god gave her a firstborn son for she thought he would be the savior but when her hope in him failed she longed still more for it and later the hearts of all the fathers clung to and sighed for the same deliverance until he came and permitted himself to be seen and heard then the whole world should have received him at once with all joy and gloried in being saved just as he himself praises this grace joyfully and with his whole heart aglow pious david thanks god when he heard for the first time from the prophet nathan god's promise that he would establish not only a dynasty and a permanent kingdom with his descendants but also that he would let christ be born of his body and thus he would found an eternal kingdom of his grace and mercy
dynasty is a succession of rulers of the same family or group. And because of this, his great joy, David did not know what he should say before God and how he should thank him. And hence, he composed so many beautiful psalms about it, especially the 89th. Besides, in his last words and testament, he praises this kindness in the highest manner and says, He hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for it is all my salvation and all my desire, and so forth. 2 Samuel 23. I'll read it out of our version. It says, David's praising the Lord and saying, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire although we make it not to grow. And I don't know what he means by that phrase. Anyway, we also can glory with David because the covenant is promises are given to us who believe in this New Testament time. We also can boast in his Savior and glory in him. But he says, Luther says, But now the dear blessed time has come, and there is a change, I say, so that people live and appear who wish neither to see nor to hear, neither to know nor to tolerate this rich grace and this highest favor of God bestowed so gratuitously. Just as we also see at present and easily understand how those who wish to be the church and to be called Christians, the Pope and bishops with their followers, who should lift their hands to heaven and thank God for their deliverance from darkness and blindness, that they have again the pure light of the gospel. These bring fire and water, wet their sword, and polish their weapons to exterminate from the earth those who teach and confess the pure gospel. There are so many unthankful, false Christians among us, just like them, who despise this salvation in the most defiant manner. Formerly, when we were captives under the Pope's tyranny, burdened with the preaching of lies relating to indulgences, purgatory, and all the dreams of the monks. What a sign and longing there was then in all the world for the true preaching of the gospel. How gladly would one then have given and labored and suffered all things possible to secure true instruction and comfort, be delivered with a good conscience from the fearful martyrdom of the confessional and other oppressive burdens imposed by the Pope. And how happy were many pious people at first because of this deliverance who learned it and thanked God for it. But now, alas, how many are there who rejoice from their hearts and acknowledge how blessed they are and that they can see and hear this. How soon they take offense at this blessed treasure and then sought something else. When they forgot all they had received and the world became again filled with fanaticism and false teachings. 
Indeed, it really depends upon seeing and hearing. It is fully revealed, and it stands forth clearly in the light before our eyes and ears. But the great mass of the world cannot see nor understand it, even if it were stuck in their eyes and continually wrung and hammered into their ears. Well, if they could hear and see a little of it, then it would accomplish something among them and improve them so that they would become more reasonable and would not thus oppose the truth. What did it help all the Pharisees that Christ himself preached the gospel to them? And what would it help all the fanatics and critics, even if it were preached twice as clearly, how we obtain the forgiveness of sins and true consolation of the conscience? Likewise, how a Christian should live in every calling of life and should know that he pleases God. Of all this they heretofore knew and heard nothing, so that they themselves acknowledged that the teaching was indeed excellent, but at the same time they remained stone blind and never entered their hearts. They could walk and live in harmony with it, all is strange to them that they hear, read, or that they themselves speak concerning it, for they are too completely chilled and choked with other thoughts of their own self-conceit and pleasure about things dear to them, so that aside from these they can neither see nor hear anything. Thus among them it is fulfilled as the prophets and Christ spoke before to the Jewish people and to all like them, that with eyes to see they shall not see, with ears to hear they shall not hear, in order that they might change and be saved. This is the highest, the most horrible, and the most fearful punishment they can bring upon themselves, and in addition be tormented in that they must daily see and hear the word and work of God that is offered to all men for their salvation, and yet they have not the grace to receive it but only hear and see it in their vexation, and thus become so bitter against it that they would rather hear and see the devil from hell. On the other hand, it's a great grace and a precious treasure for him who receives this teaching, that he sees and hears it aright, so that we should indeed declare such a one saved and a miracle of God. I added that. For the seeing and hearing that enter the heart bring and give a fullness and richness of possessions and understanding, enlightenment, comfort, strength and growth of spirit, joy and life, that we can never hear and see enough of it and prefer to hear, to learn and to know this above everything else that may be preached, taught, sung or said, that it should help our salvation. Yea, it lets all other things pass, as if it heard and saw them not, although in civil government and life it must see and hear much. Yet it clings alone to this light and knowledge, which is so great that it completely fills the eyes and heart and darkens and blinds everything else. In like manner the sun at its rising so completely fills the world with light that the moon and the stars are no longer seen or thought of, although they give their light every night. In like manner let holy people, 
wise and learned, like Moses, the prophets, fathers, or St. John the Baptist himself, give light here in this world. Yet they all should yield to Christ, yea, bear witness that he alone is the light by whom all men are to be enlightened, that they themselves must become partakers of that light, and that in Christendom all light, wisdom, and teaching aside from Christ must cease or be found alone in him. In the same manner should the beautiful sound and lovely music of the gospel of Christ so engage and fill our ears we may hear nothing else as when a great bell or a kettle drum and trumpet sound and resound. The air is so full that whatever else is spoken, sung, or cried cannot be heard. So should Christ's words constantly in all our lives and actions have the upper hand in our hearts through faith and know of comfort, righteousness, and salvation from none other. These would indeed be blessed eyes and ears that could thus make use of the blessed time or dispensation of the gospel and know what God has given them in it. For such eyes and ears God himself esteems as an excellent and precious treasure and a sacred and holy possession which could not be purchased by the whole world even if it had many more and brighter lights and suns. Now it looks like we come to the end of that there topic, subject, Christ praising the gospel. Now the second heading is a sermon of Christ on truly good works. Truly good works, what could they be? This is an admonition of Christ to his dear disciples, yea, consolation and encouragement, heartily to stand by the gospel, since he esteems and praises it to be so precious. But how it is esteemed by others who are not true disciples of Christ, but are much smarter and holier themselves, and that they should need this teaching, the lawyer shows who stands by as they were all together with Christ wherever he came, they heard whatever he spoke. He had heard that Christ speaks earnestly to his disciples, that they hear and see what was never seen or heard before. This lawyer could no longer retain his great skill and wisdom. He had to step forward and let himself be heard and try if he could not put Christ to shame, carry off the glory. Christ was nothing, but he was a highly educated rabbi in that he propounds to him a much higher theme. Hence he steps forward and proposes to him this question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That these are not the eyes and ears of one who hears and sees what Christ is, he himself makes manifest by his own words, as all must do. They, in the most perfect way, prove themselves to be such. For he hereby confesses he knows nothing more nor higher than the doctrine that treats of our own doings and works. Of God's grace, 
Christ's office and work he knows nothing. He has as yet never understood anything about them, although he had heard Christ speak of them. He at once imagines he knows much better than Christ can teach him. He wished to say like our fanatics and critics, that which I have hitherto heard from you is common. You must ascend much higher to interest us. Dear sir, teach the people wants to do something by which man is saved. But Christ lets such a tempter rush ahead and gives him a good handle by which he in a masterly manner ensnares himself in his own words. Bids him to report and answer himself, since he wishes to be so learned and clever. And he says, What is written in the law? How readest thou? As if he would say, I hear indeed that you profess to have higher wisdom than I. Come, deliver yourself. I will be a pupil of your discourse and consider you a teacher. In his answer, Christ, however, forces him into the scriptures when he says, How readest thou? For it's not Christ's pleasure for people to propound and preach their own arrogance, hereby to show, hereby he shows this lawyer as he later draws from him through his own confession with the question, Who is his neighbor? and so forth. That the man does not understand the scriptures, even in that part, where he speaks of our own works. Therefore, much less does he understand the other higher teachings. Here he must not and cannot answer differently than as Moses in Deuteronomy 6.5 comprehended in the shortest form a summary of all God's commandments, how we should live in our relations both to God and man. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. This is teaching truly high order, yea, the greatest thing that can be required of a man as Christ himself confesses and confirms when he says, Thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. But it is nevertheless a teaching that is common, that is well known to all the Jews as to the words, although they do not rightly understand them. And the disciples of Christ had also certainly heard them. Hence this critic should have indeed known that Christ spoke of another, a higher theme, since he said his disciples were especially blessed and that they see and hear what others did not. But all such hypocrites and fanatics must prove that they esteem Christ and his gospel as nothing. Let themselves imagine they know everything much better. Now this commandment has often been explained, and there is much, still much, to be said about it, for it is indeed the highest art and wisdom. It is never learned perfectly, much less perfectly fulfilled and lived, so that God's Son had, therefore, to come from heaven, shed his blood, and give us the gospel, so that this commandment might be kept. 
although here in this life it makes only a little beginning among us Christians. Yet in a life beyond, we will constantly and forever have it in our eyes and hearts and live it. In short, it is far too high above the mind, heart, and sense of all mortals what the words mean to love God with all thy heart, with all thy strength, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. For as yet no one experiences it except those a little who have the gospel and embrace Christ by faith, receive the comfort and power of it in times of need, temptation and prayer, and thus experience a taste of it. Yet these persons themselves feel and lament, like all the saints and Paul himself, that they are still far from it. And their flesh and blood feel nothing but sin and death, which, of course, would not be the case if this commandment had gone fully into practice and life. Therefore, such proud, godless spirits are shameless and troublesome as this lawyer who went forward so boldly. That they esteem nothing at all, neither the high and earnest command of God, neither do they wish to hear and know the doctrine of the gospel. They imagine it's enough if they have heard and can say the words, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and thy neighbor as thyself. They do not perceive that God wants such doctrines not only heard and spoken, but put into practice. And where one does not esteem this, it will bring upon him higher and unbearable condemnation. As Christ says in Luke 12:47, And that servant who knew his Lord's will and made not ready, nor did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes, and so forth. Therefore, Christ gave this lawyer no other reply than this. Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. That means preaching the law right and delivering a good, strong lecture, yea, snaring him with his own words, taking hold of him at the right place to show him where he was lacking. Doctrine, he says, is precious and true, but, dear sir, do it also. I would gladly see the doer of the law. Then be a master, and let your work of art be exhibited, for you all have spoken, written, and known it, and you need nothing more, but just here you and others are lacking. But you do not do what you profess, but imagine it's enough to speak and think the words, no, in this way no one will live or be saved. The commandments must be kept and done, for the wrath of God and eternal death instead of life will abide upon you. Such is the judgment upon the critics who wish to know so much and teach everybody the way of salvation. Yet they know nothing more than their own work works and doings, despise the teaching of the gospel, so that such talk is nothing but mere empty, wicked, and vain nonsense, since nothing follows from it, as St. Paul says of these doctrines of the law and of works in Galatians 6.13.
Quote, For not even they who receive circumcision do themselves keep the law. Hence one may justly say to them, as Christ here says to this lawyer, Dear teacher, do, your, do yourself what you tell, teach others. And also as St. Paul in Romans 2, 19-23 says, Thou art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a teacher of babes, a light of them which are in darkness, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? And then he ends by saying, Thou that glorieth in the law, or rather makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God. Thus one sees in the papal sophists, fanatics, and all they who are not of the pure gospel teaching, what great and excellent works they profess, how they adorn themselves in the highest degree with them, as the saintly monks do, and yet they accomplish nothing. Yea, they only transgress God's law and oppose it, as is proved in their case, and Christ shows in the following parable, that no persons are more unmerciful, more unpleasant, and of course more unloving to their neighbor, more destitute of love to God than such hypocrites. Yea, this do, yea, this do are the words of Christ, the eternal lesson and sermon that is here spoken and preached to all men, also to the saints, and it accuses them that they cannot and dare not glory before God on account of their works, merits, and sanctity. But they must, if they would know themselves aright and stand before God, condemn themselves and their manner of life. So I hear no saint has ever been able to stand upon this foundation, either in the Old or in the New Testament. They must all be mirrored in these words, this do, which means nothing more than, see, you've not done this, nor fulfilled it yet. Like Moses himself, who had the honor of being faithful in all the things of God, God called him his friend, with whom he spake by word of mouth and face to face. Yet he had to say to God, O Lord God of all spirits and of all flesh, thou art merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, thou forgivest iniquity, transgression and sin, and before thee none is guiltless. Here he casts away both his own holiness and that of all men and pleads guilty before God. In like manner, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 5 and 6, when he stands before God and sees his glory, confesses that he is unclean and must be com comforted by an angel, that his sins are forgiven him so forth. I'll read it out of the Bible. It says, Then said I, 
Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And also, Luther says, Jeremiah, when he prayed before God and gloried in opposing his persecutors, Jeremiah 17, 16, and 17. Lord, thou knowest, that which came out of my lips was before thy face. Our version says it a little easier. It says, Thou knowest that which came out of my lips was right before thee. Be not a terror unto me, thou art my hope in a day of evil. But in the first phrase where he said, I was boasting of how that which came out of my lips was right before thee. Luther says, Here he was happy and holy, yet soon after he turns and says, Be not a terror unto me, thou art my hope in the day of evil. Likewise in Jeremiah 10.24, where Jeremiah says, O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. Where is here the pious and holy man with whom the Lord is never angry? Why then does he fear that he will bring him to naught? Thus also David confessed his own sin and the sin of all his people and said in Daniel 9.18, We do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercy's sake. And David himself, when he received the forgiveness of his sins and pure consolation, that he had a gracious God, often glories, especially in Psalm 119.97, following how he did what is right and pleasing to God, and God himself bears witness of this concerning him, 1 Samuel 13:14 that he had found a man after his own heart. Yet he prays and sings psalms of the greatest fear and anxiety. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure, and so forth. Likewise, that was in Psalm 6:1. Likewise in Psalm 143:2. I like to read verse uh, 1 also. It's beautiful. It says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness, in thy faithfulness, that's what I like, thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. 
In the like manner also St. Peter opens his mouth boldly in Acts 15.10 and says of the whole law, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? This he says of all saints, fathers, prophets, apostles, and he should in this manner exclude all from heaven, as must have happened on account of the law and their doings, had they not remained under the heaven of grace, as he says in verse 11, further by saying, in uh, verse 11, next verse, but we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. And St. Paul says in Luke, or Acts rather, 13, 38 and 39, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now if all the saints must confess this, who still have grace and the Holy Spirit, how will or dare the other blind poor spirits presume and imagine that they have kept the commandments of God? When they from human thoughts or they form human thoughts and dream they love God and their neighbor. And yet they are so far from it that they do not understand or know what God's commandment requires and how it is kept. This they prove when they are put to the test, when they are to exhibit in a becoming manner love to their God and their neighbor, as when they are required to suffer anything for God's sake as injury and disgrace, either from men or when God himself visits them with his rod, then one sees that the thoughts springing from their own brain are really nothing. Yea, they work only the opposite. They rage, murmur, curse, and blaspheme against God, as if God did them an injustice. In like manner, they act to their neighbors, where they know not how to enjoy a neighbor or to secure some advantage and honor from him, but should serve him gratuitously and help the poor, as this Samaritan did the wounded one by the wayside, expect also harm and ingratitude for extending the helping hand, then there is not only no spark of love, but at once they seek revenge, turn the people over to the devil, think they do right in this, and are under no obligation to love such persons. Now that was the end of the topic on truly good works. Now we have another, or the last one, a beautiful picture of the kingdom of Christ. Even this blind hypocrite is of the same mind. He never thinks and speaks of what he owes his neighbor, 
and yet he wants to be considered saintly and holy because he's a lawyer and knows how to speak of the law. And although he was indeed reproved by Christ, and he surely knows he was hit and was told he did not keep the law, yet nonetheless he's so bold and impudent as to despise God's word so that he beautifully adorns himself and shines brightly and begins to ask, And who is my neighbor? He feels that he made a mistake in speaking and that he opened his mouth too wide against himself. He is now caught and taken captive by the Lord's answer, and he drives a pen before his tongue so that he is not able to take it back. Yet he was not so pious that he did Christ and God the honor to humble him, confess the truth that he did not keep these commandments, and so forth. But he forges ahead and desires to be viewed as having done all, especially all that is due to God. Hence he does not even think of asking if he is indebted more to God, but desires no more than that Christ shows him who his neighbor is, to whom he should still be indebted for anything, that he has not performed it. Turn the tape over now. It is shameless presumption on the part of such saints of Satan that they are so very certain in their knowledge when God judges them, and even when they have been moved by the law and it is sufficiently proved to them that they have not kept the law, they are not changed by it until they once meet the judgment and the wrath of God in their severity, that they are compelled to feel them. However, the lies and shame of such hypocrites are hereby sufficiently uncovered, although they will not be ashamed, nor turn red for it, so that they must show by their own confession. They do not yet understand what Moses and the law require, because those who will wish, or still wish, to be masters of the scriptures prove themselves to be guilty in that they do not know or do not appreciate who their neighbor is as he is clearly enough set forth by Moses and in this commandment. Therefore Christ also shows the same to this lawyer clearly and plainly enough, not from the scriptures, but by means of a plain parable and picture, that he himself must seize it and let fall upon him the judgment of his own shame, that he did not wish to know or understand it. So now he says, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, and so forth. Now the lawyer hears for the first time the appropriate text that puts him and all hypocrites like him to shame, and publicly he is convinced that he never kept the law, yea, that he did not understand it even in the smallest point, referring to his neighbor because he still doubts and does not know whom to consider as his neighbor. Otherwise he would be inclined to love him. But thus it serves them right, they who wish to master this man Christ and his word. And because they are very anxious to approach Christ with the law and plan to present it to him in a sharp and high manner so that they find also sharp, 
opposition, they are obliged to depart in shame, and they see that he also knows something to say about the law, and that he lays hold of it and has Moses in his eye in a different way than they. In brief, Christ shows here that he will not and cannot be caught by questions and debates relating to the law, and it is hurtful to no one but to those who let themselves fall into such questions and become entangled by them so that they can never get out again. For this surely happens to all who deal with the law independently of faith and the right understanding of the gospel. For where Moses alone with his shining light and rays, which are the horns going forth from his countenance, strikes us in our eyes, no one can stand before him. In short, whoever allows himself to be driven to Moses and will deal with the law is lost. So that here even Christians must battle until they get out and are again wrapped up and enclosed in Christ concerning which I have said more elsewhere. Now in their folly and blindness, all hypocritical saints resemble this lawyer in that they not only fail to keep an iota of the law, however high they praise it, but as to its fundamental meaning, they understand nothing about it unless they learn to repeat its words like a parakeet as St. Paul also says of them in 1 Timothy 1.7, desiring to be teachers of the law, though they understand neither what they say nor whereof they can confidently affirm. Yea, verily it is true that no man on earth knows except by the Spirit of Christ either what God is, how he should honor and thank him, or who his neighbor is. For just as all the world make their own gods and never happen to produce a true god, but is divided into innumerable idolatries, so is the world also blind here in that it never meets its neighbor whom it sees ever before its eyes, passes by him, lets him suffer in distress and hunger, whom it should serve and help, since it in other ways gives very much and does many great works, especially are the Jewish hypocritical interpretations here reproved and rejected, which paint and polish their neighbor according to their own fancy, considering him a neighbor, he whom they like, that is, he who is a friend and who has well merited and is worthy of a kindness and of love, whom they have enjoyed or hope yet to enjoy. They imagine they are not yet indebted to serve and help the stranger, the unacquainted, the unworthy, unthankful enemies, and so forth. Against such hypocrisy, Christ answers with the history of this poor wounded man who fell among robbers and was lying half dead, whom the Samaritan alone receives, serves, and helps, and whom both the priest and the Levite pass by and leave lying helpless. Here the lawyer himself must answer that neither the priest nor the Levite was a neighbor to this man, but he who extended to him a kind, helping hand was. 
The hypocrite did not dare to mention the Samaritan by name, for the Jews were bitter enemies to the Samaritans, their neighbors, considering them to be the worst people, like we look upon heretics or fallen Christians. By this, without any praise to himself, yea, against his own will, he is obliged to confess and say, Who is a neighbor to another? And truly it sounds strange that he should be called a neighbor who does a good act and loves another, since otherwise to speak after the manner of the scriptures and of this commandment, he is called a neighbor who needs a favor or should be served and shown love. But both belong together and both are comprehended as in the predicate of relationship. And they bind us all together as so that every one is a neighbor to another. However, to be such neighbors among one another is twofold, the first only in name and with words, the other in deed and with works of love. In this sense, the Samaritan was neighbor to the wounded man, not the priest or Levite, who by right should have been and were an under obligation to be. For in this respect all men are debtors to one another and have the same commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and so forth. Hence there is no difference, and in brief the meaning of this example is as Christ forces this hypocrite to confess, according to the common understanding of men, that they are neighbors, they who before God belong together, where one needs help and another can give it. And here no one is excused nor free, be priest or Levite. And Christ is here especially sarcastic and vexed, so that he attacks the priest and Levite, the most holy persons, and the commissioned servants of God, and excuses, shames, and scorns them by the example of the Samaritan, before whom they had a horror and an aversion as before a condemned criminal. But by this he shows that those who are the greatest and boast most of keeping God's commandments and teaching others and should go ahead with good examples in brief, those who are considered to be the high, the wise, the influential, and the best have the least neighbor love, especially to the poor, forsaken, persecuted Christians who suffer for the sake of God and his word. For with their eyes centered constantly on their own sanctity, wisdom, and great talents, they imagine every person is obligated to serve them. They do not think that which they have is given by God only for the purpose that they might let their righteousness, wisdom, honor, and possessions serve the needy, ignorant, sinful, and despised. Hence this Samaritan is justly praised to the everlasting shame of the priests, the Jewish saints, and also this hypocrite, for he showed such kindness and love to this stranger and wounded man who was doubtless a Jew, while his own priests, Levite, and scribes left him lying in his misery and wretchedness, 
and as far as they were concerned, dying and perishing. But by Christ, making the Samaritan a neighbor of him who had fallen among the robbers, is meant especially to prove that he himself is and desires to be neighbor, who fulfills the law in the right sense, shows his love to the poor, wretched, before God wounded and perishing consciences and hearts of all men. And by this he also is an example that his Christian should do as he does, who is considered as a Samaritan before the whole world, and especially in the eyes of the great saints, his own Jewish countrymen, that they do the same, since other people do it not. Also that they take to themselves the need of the poor, forsaken and helpless, and know what they do to them, they do to Christ as their neighbor. Now here in this Samaritan, Christ pictures and makes known the kindness, help, and comfort which he ministers in his kingdom through the gospel, which is the same of which he spoke to his disciples at the beginning. Quote, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see, and so forth. He paints in the most comforting manner what faith possesses in him and how far his gospel differs from the doctrine of the law of the priests and Levites, concerning which I have said so much heretofore. We see in this picture how we who have fallen into sin against God lie under the wrath of God and must die the eternal death, are again rescued only by him, in that we receive God's grace and comfort and a quickening of conscience, and we begin to keep the law. And we begin to keep the law. This is a principal article of the doctrine of faith that says we cannot save ourselves, neither can anything we do, nor the doctrines of the law. But he must begin faith in us, who does not force the law upon our attention when we feel our sins and misery. Well, that's the work of the secure spirits like this lawyer who resent being reproved as sinners. But he has tender mercy upon us besides his friendly and consoling through his word and himself binds up the sores of the wounded places him on his own beast, nurses and looks after him. For he had to accomplish our redemption alone and take our place, bear in his own body our sins and need. He himself publishes this and gives us the comforting word by which our wounds are bound up and healed. This is called pouring wine and oil into the wounds, both of which are good medicines for the injured. The wine preserves the flesh clean and fresh, that the wounds may not corrupt or fester. Likewise, this balsam is especially given to the land of the Jews, namely the noble, precious oil, that is, the best remedy known for all kinds of injuries. It is a preaching of the Holy Gospel, which does both. 
It keeps a penitent conscience in the knowledge of its sins and wickedness. It keeps a penitent conscience in the knowledge of its sins and wickedness, that it neither becomes secure nor ceases to long for grace. Besides, he comforts the conscience by grace and forgiveness, and thus ever makes man better until he is again well and begins again to do the work of a healthy man. And to this end, Christ makes use of the office and service of the church, as he commands her to expect and take care of such by means of the same office and spirit which he bestows, and asks her to be faithful in everything that ministers to their strength and improvement, to comfort, admonish, restrain, chastise, and so forth, and assures her what she does and sacrifices in such cases, he will reward. Behold, this is the doctrine and power of the gospel and the treasure by which we are saved, which brings us to the point that we also begin to fulfill the law. For where the great unfathomable love and favor of Christ are known and believed, thence flows forth also love both to God and our neighbor, which the Ten Commandments teach. For by means of such knowledge and consolation, the Holy Spirit moves the heart to love God, and gladly does what it should do to his praise and thanks, guards against sin, which are against God's commandments, and disobedience, and willingly offers itself to serve and help everybody. Where it still feels its weakness, it battles against the flesh and Satan by calling upon God, and so forth. And thus, while ever rising in faith, it holds to Christ. Where it does not do enough in keeping the law, its comfort is that Christ fulfills the law and bestows and imparts his fullness and strength and thus he remains always our righteousness, salvation, sanctification, and so forth. This is the right way to secure the observance of the law, of which our blind critics know nothing. But Christ beautifully shows by this that one must hear the gospel and believe in Christ before he can fulfill the law. Otherwise there is nothing but hypocrisy, and nothing but pure boasting and talking about the law without any heart and life in it all. Here we should also answer those who misuse today's gospel to support their blasphemous doctrine when Christ says of the Samaritan, he commended the sick to his host, and when he gives him the half dollar, says to him, Whatsoever thou spendest more, I, when I come back again, will repay thee. For the monks and sophists have invented from these words their lies about works, which they call the works of superrogation, works in excess or more than required, when one does more than God commands him, which he is otherwise not obligated to do. And such lies they confirmed by other blasphemies in making rules from the Sermon of Christ, in which he explained the Ten Commandments, 
and later applied them to their monastic life as if the monks were the greatest saints for whom it was too insignificant a thing to keep God's commandments. As if they did on a higher plane many and great excessive works in their order for which God was obligated to give much more than heaven, not only to themselves but to other people to whom they wished to impart their works of supererogation namely to sell their lies and blasphemies for money. Their God, the Pope, confirmed this and canonized and exalted these his saints as those who hereby strengthened his Godhead and influence also over the dead in purgatory. This blasphemy is, however, entirely too base and shameless, far above the blindness and presumption of this lawyer and those like him, for they do not only wish to be praised for keeping God's commandments, none of which they understand or think of keeping the least one in earnest, but they wish to be considered as having done much higher and many more works than all the saints whom God himself praises in the scriptures, all of whom nevertheless confess that they've not kept the law for or by themselves, and must therefore, because they did not fulfill the law, seek and pray for grace and forgiveness with Christ. What a shame that people in the church of Christ dare speak of works and spheres of influence which should be superfluous, and they be said to have done more than God's command required. And still Christ said publicly of the lives of all men in Luke 17:10, Even so ye also, when ye shall have done all the things that are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We've done that which it was our duty to do. Thus you hear that it is purely a debt and a duty, even if one should reach the point which no saint on earth can, that he had done all, and that he would then have nothing of which to boast, and for which God would be obliged to thank him. Still what better and higher work will one find or name that should have been commanded by God? For although they have now for a long time dribbled about virginity, I ask if such work can be better than what God calls here love to God with the whole heart. Yea, if independent of this command it could succeed or be done, should it be good and well-pleasing to God in a different or extraordinary way? How is it then possible to have an excess of good works or do anything better than God has commanded? For what good can you do that you do not do either to God or to man out of love, which you are indebted to do by reason of your eternal condemnation? What can father or mother do more for their child? Yea, what more can God himself and Christ do for us and to love us? That's a good question. What more can God himself and Christ do for us than to love us, which the Ten Commandments teach? What does it mean then to advance such shameless lies and foolishness about certain works? which are in excess over those that are commanded when one has as yet fully attained or one no one has as yet fully attained to the measure of the ten commandments here on earth 
It is true the Papists are now ashamed of such slobbering, let's call it slobbering, with which they have poured all their books full, but yet they cannot quit their blasphemy. Since they see now that this lie will not stand, they fall upon another interpretation that is just as blasphemous as the first. They turn the words, Whatsoever thou spendest more, from the life and works to the doctrine. And say, we must do not only what the scriptures teach, but hear also what, what the church teaches and decrees concerning the same. For the apostles and bishops are commanded to add more to the two shillings, namely to the Old and New Testaments, Yet, see how the devil juggles and distorts himself by his sophistry and blind tricks, and that he adorns and colors his lies. They've heard and learned something of us, that in this parable the two shillings apply to the office of the ministry in the church. For Christ is speaking of the office that should attend and care for the sick, and is administered for their relief and recovery, Hence the two shillings are the holy scriptures, or rather, the pound, as Christ calls them in another place, that is, the understanding of the scriptures in the measure and gifts of the Spirit given to each one, all which is still the one and same understanding without one having it in a richer degree than another. These sophists wish now to cite these words to support the foundation of their lies that in Christendom we must teach, believe, and hold as essential for salvation more than Christ has given and commanded us to teach. They are blind, mad, perverted persons who always seek something different and more, both to do and teach than God's word require. And yet they do not do it nor teach it, but let that be realized which they wish to have taught and practiced. Therefore we tell you here again as before, Beloved, what can you do, or what do you know that is better and more necessary to teach, and what Christ taught or commanded to teach? And what do we need more to minister to the consciences in everything that is necessary for them to instruct, admonish, comfort, strengthen, correct, and in short, to do all that is necessary for salvation, and the doctrine of the scriptures, namely both of the law and of the gospel. St. Paul also shows in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In these words you hear that the scriptures richly contain and offer everything that serves to right living and good works, why will you then feign or seek something different that is to be taught above or alongside of the scriptures? Beloved, first explain the two shillings that Christ gives and practice well the doctrine they teach, then we will see later what more you are able to explain or teach. For this success or explanation of the two shillings, 
we may without danger and in harmony with the meaning of all the scriptures also interpret as a growth and exercise in the true doctrine and the understanding of it as St. Paul admonishes in 1 Timothy 4, 13, 14, and 15. Till I come, says Paul, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all and so forth. For the more one practices and exercises himself in the doctrine of the scriptures, the more learned, gifted, and powerful he becomes in them, as is the case in other arts. Therefore, the explanation of this excess is, where one practices this doctrine among the people, as everyone is bound to do, and according to his faithfulness in doing it, he is either weak or strong, needs more comfort, admonition, and so forth than another. But it is not the intention and zeal of these sophists to be so faithful and diligent that they can correctly explain the two shillings. That is, they teach diligently what Christ, that is, that they teach diligently what Christ commanded, since they do not wish to do or to know this, for they shun the scriptures like they shun the devil. They neither understand the teaching of the law nor of the gospel, nor of the gospel, but they fill the church with their prattle and human doctrines, pervert and counterfeit God's word, as the devil advocates, that this explanation of the two shillings must teach them something different than the gospel teaches, as they do nothing but propagate another and contrary doctrine of their cursed lying prattle against the faith of Christ among the people. The summary is, since Christ himself and apostles everywhere forbid the introduction of other doctrines, it cannot stand the test that one should desire to confirm a different doctrine by this parable or allegory. So Christ will not expect of such sick persons anything different than he himself gives to them, and that which can be further explained must not be anything different, but be in harmony with that which Christ himself gives and has given. However, it is possible that one should study a doctrine more and harder than another, and thus, in this way, explains more, as St. Paul says of himself in 1 Corinthians 15:10, that he labored more and accomplished more than all the other apostles. And St. Ambrose also applies this explanation to himself and says, He did with his sermons and writings, which indeed are nothing more than Christ commanded him to teach. Fill his measure to overflowing, and he accomplished thereby more than others. But of himself and other preachers, he says, God grant that we might make use of and compute what we have received of Christ. Now, that sentence was a little hard to catch who's, what he was saying, changing the person and uh, not knowing where and how. Whether he had accomplished more Ambrose himself than others or Christ accomplished more than others and gave to them to accomplish and so forth. But anyway, that is the end of the sermon.
And the next one is the 14th Sunday after Trinity. This was an edition C sermon, by the way. Krusiger, Casper Krusiger, Luther's revisionist, in the year of 1543, I believe. Now we begin on page 60. The 14th Sunday after Trinity. In 1521, Luther published a sermon in pamphlet form on the ten lepers, of which the following is a part. The sermon here given is found in all editions of Luther's church fossil. It says the rest of the sermon of 1521 is printed in Luther's miscellaneous sermons, and he has the German text, German editions. Now the text is Luke 17, 11 through 19. And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood far off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Master, or rather Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God, fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. St. Luke excels the other evangelists in that he not only describes Christ's work and doctrine like they, but also observe the order of his journeys and circuits. His gospel to the 13th chapter shows how Christ began at Capernaum to preach and do wonders, whither he moved from Nazareth and where he made his home, so that Capernaum is called his city in the gospel. From there he went out everywhere into cities and villages, preaching and working miracles. After he had accomplished all his work and had preached over the whole country, he prepared to go up to Jerusalem. This journey to Jerusalem he describes from the end of the ninth chapter to the close of his gospel, how Christ during this journey preached and worked miracles, for this is Christ's last journey and was finished in his last year at the close of his life. This is what he means here when he says, And it came to pass as they were on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing along the borders of Samaria and Galilee. That is to say, this miracle he performed during his last journey to Jerusalem. Now this was not the direct road from Capernaum to Jerusalem, for Galilee is north of Jerusalem, and Samaria is south of Galilee. 
and Capernaum is in Galilee. I suppose I could check that out on a map so I can understand what he's saying. It looks to me like if he was coming from Capernaum, it's north of, of uh, Samaria. He would have to go along the border of Samaria to get to Jerusalem, so I don't understand what he's talking about here. But I guess that's not too important. Let's go on. The evangelist with special pains desires to show that he did not journey on the usual road as he mentions Samaria and Galilee and adds that he went through between them and not across their borders the nearest way. Christ journeyed from Capernaum eastward to the Jordan southward from Galilee to Jerusalem, which was a tiresome, far and circuitous route, in doing which he took his own leisure and time, for he did not journey thus for his own sake, but in order to preach as much as possible and be of service to many. Therefore he journeyed on the borders of these lands to appear publicly, that people might come to him from all sides to hear him and obtain his help, for he was sent to offer his service to everyone, that all might freely enjoy his favor and grace. Thus the evangelist now describes the miracle and says, And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, who stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. One might ask the evangelist how these lepers could stand afar off and lift up their voices, as lepers could not as a rule speak aloud, and therefore they had to make a noise by rattling or clapping something. Of course he would answer that they did not stand a mile away, only that they were not as near to him as those following him, and that all lepers are not so entirely voiceless that they cannot be heard even at a distance. However, the evangelist, according to the custom of holy writ, desires hereby to indicate the great earnestness of their desire, that the voice of their heart was great, that compelled them to cry out bodily as loud as they could. This entire gospel, however, is a plain, simple history or transaction which requires little explanation. Yet, as plain as it is, Great is the example it presents to us. In the leper it teaches us faith. In Christ it teaches us love. Now as I've often said, faith and love constitute the whole character of the Christian. Faith receives, love gives. Faith brings man to God. Love brings man to his fellow. Through faith he permits God to do him good. Through love he goes or he does good to his brother man. For whoever believes has everything from God and is happy and rich, therefore he needs henceforth nothing more. But all he lives and does, he orders for the good and benefit of his neighbor, and through love he does to his neighbor as God did to him through faith. 
Thus he reaps good from above through faith and gives good below through love. Against this kind of life, work righteous persons with their merits and good works terribly contend, for they do works only to serve themselves. They live only unto themselves and do good without faith. These two principles, faith and love, we will now consider as they appear in the lepers and in Christ. In the first place, it is characteristic of faith to presume to trust God's grace, and it forms a bright vision and refuge in God. Doubting nothing, it thinks that God will have regard for his faith and not forsake it. For where there is no such vision and confidence, there is no true faith, and there is also no true prayer nor any seeking after God. For where it exists, it makes man bold and anxious, freely to bring his troubles unto God and earnestly to pray for help. Therefore, it's not enough for you to believe that there is a God and pray many words as the wretched custom now is. But observe here in the leper how faith is constituted, how without any teacher at all it teaches us how our prayers may be truly fruitful. You here observe how they had a good opinion of and a comforting assurance in Christ, firmly thought that he would be gracious to them. This thought made them bold and anxious to bring their troubles to him and to cry for help with great earnestness and a loud voice. For if they had not previously possessed this fancy and expectation, they would undoubtedly have remained at home or would not have gone forth to meet him would they with raised voices have cried to him, but their doubt would have advised them thus. What shall we do? Who knows whether he would like to have us ask him? Perhaps he will not notice us, and so forth. Oh, such wavering and doubt offer sluggish prayers. It does not raise a voice nor go forward to meet Christ. It indeed murmurs many words and chants many songs very willingly, but it does not pray, and it only desires first to be sure that it will be heard, which is nothing else than to tempt God. But true faith does not doubt the good and gracious will of God, wherefore its prayer is strong and firm like faith itself. St. Luke does not relate three things of them in vain, First, they went to meet him. Second, they stood. Third, they lifted up their voices. By these three things, their strong faith is commended and presented to us as an example. The going forth to meet him is the boldness excited by comforting assurance. The standing is the firmness and sincerity against doubt. The lifting up the voice is a great earnestness in prayer, going out of such confidence. But powerless doubt does not go forth, nor stand, nor call, but turns and twists and hangs the head, grasps it in the hands, opens the mouth wide and stammers forth perpetually, who knows, who knows, if it were certain, how if it would fail, 
and similar faint-hearted expressions. For it has no favorable conception or thought of God, expects nothing of him, and hence will receive nothing, as James says, 1, 6, and 7, quote, of course, I'll start with verse 5. It says, you know, I always used to think it says, if any man lack wisdom, it doesn't. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Now, this is where Luther said, or referred to, the sixth verse says, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Afterwards they come like the foolish virgins who spilt their oil with their empty lamps, that is, with their works, and think God should hear them, hear them knock and open to them, but he will not. Behold, this good inclination or comforting trust or free presumption toward God, or whatever you may call it, in the scriptures is called Christian faith and a good conscience, which man must have if he desires to be saved. But it is not obtained by human works and precepts, as we shall see in this example. Without such a heart, no work is good. Therefore, be on your guard. There are many lecturers who want to teach faith and conscience, and no less about them than a common blockhead. They think it is a sleepy, lazy thing in the soul, that it's enough for the heart to believe that God is God. But here you observe what a thoroughly living and powerful thing faith is. It creates wholly a new heart, a new man, who expects all grace from God. Therefore it urges to walk, to stand, makes bold to cry and pray in every time of trouble. And we will continue this on the next tape.